So, with that being said, let us get ready to uh, go into the sermon for this morning. So, this morning we're actually going to be in a couple of different places. We have two main texts, um, but we're going to start in John chapter 17, and then we'll move over to the other one uh, a little bit later in the message. So, we're going to start in John chapter 17 today, and uh, starting in verse 20. I'll give you just a moment to turn there. If you can't find it or you're having trouble finding it or you don't have your Bible with you, that's okay because we will have the uh, text up on the screens next to me so you can follow along there. Once again, we'll be in John chapter 17 and uh, verse 20. Okay, well, if we are all there or close to being there, we're going to go ahead and jump into this so that we can... Go into our teaching for today as we continue in our series called On Earth As It Is In Heaven. And today we're going to be in John chapter 17 and starting verse 20. Verse 20, Jesus said, this is Jesus' prayer as he is in the garden right before his arrest and execution on the cross. In verse 20, he prays, he says, I pray not only for these, speaking of his 12 disciples, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, talking about us. May they all be one, as you, Father, are in me, and I am in you. May they also be in us, so that the world may believe you sent me. I have given them the glory you have given me, so that they may be one as we are one. I am in them, and you are in me, so that they may be made completely one, that the world may know you have sent me, and have loved them as you have loved me. So today we're going to be, like I said, continuing in our series called On Earth As It Is In Heaven. And the goal of this series is that we would take uh, the solutions of Scripture, that we would take the diagnoses of Scripture to the world's problems and the solutions to those diagnoses and apply them to our world today. What we're doing especially is we are looking at some of the darkest places in our world today, some of the hardest places in our culture where there are uh, worldview divisions or where there is conflict, and we're trying to apply a biblical worldview to those issues. In other words, um, you know, we look around at society and, and the, the culture that's around us, and we see problems, but very rarely do you see the problem without wearing some kind of a lens. What I mean by that is you're viewing the problem, but maybe you're wearing the lens of, Uh, whatever the media narrative is telling you. And that lens is coloring whatever you're seeing and it's interpreting whatever you're seeing so that that the event or the data that you're looking at is being being interpreted and colored by the lens that you're wearing. And so you can be wearing a few different types of lenses. We call these worldviews. But what I want us to do is to remove those and to take on the Bible as our lens, to take on what God says about the world so that it would, the world would be interpreted properly for us, so that we would see things as God wants us to see them, which would be the true way. And so that's what we've been doing uh, in this series. And last week we started off with uh, going into the topic of racial divisions in our country and the, the, the problem of these racial divisions and the question of what are these solutions? How do we uh, step into these issues, uh, shining the light of the gospel and looking at them through a biblical lens? We started doing that last week, and I made the argument that uh, racial reconciliation has been accomplished in Christ. What we need to do is embrace it. 
Okay, so that's the overarching message. But today what we're doing is we are going a little bit deeper into, well, what does that look like? <clears throat> right, okay, embracing the gospel message for reconciliation and unity. Sounds good, but in practice, what does it look like? And that's what we are getting into today. For the past several months, as I've been preparing for this series and learning about uh, the Bible's answers to these solutions, there's been, you know, I've, I've been studying and studying from some black pastors and theologians who are incredible men of God who've been helping me. One of them uh, is a guy named Christopher Brooks, and uh, a sermon that I heard him preach uh, at my seminary alma mater a few years ago. Another one being Vody Bauckham, and these incredible men of God who have helped me to see these issues through a biblical lens, and then which has brought me so much clarity. And so what I hope that we can do today is to do the same thing that I have experienced, to look at these issues through a biblical lens, through a biblical worldview, and especially putting aside politics, right? And that's difficult for us to do because politics has invaded and infused and saturated every single area of our culture, and it has even invaded its way into the church. Even as uh, so many of us have preached trying to stop it, it still invades its way in. And so I think that it is so incredibly important for us today as we approach this issue and as we keep uh, 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 leaning into this, this question of ethnic reconciliation and unity, that we put aside partisan politics and look at what Scripture has to say. One of the reasons that, that I felt it necessary to preach this series was because of what we saw last year in our, in our nation in terms of all of these different racial events that happened with police shootings, uh, the responses of protests and rioting and so on, and then the church, which was as equally as divided as the world, the church which was completely ineffective and impotent to give anything helpful to the solution inspired me to then try to take on this series as a project to say, well, can Redeemer have a different response? Can we say something or do something helpful? And in order to do that, we're going to have to start with Scripture rather than politics. There's a, there's a theologian in the last century named Richard John Newhouse, and he wrote, culture is the root of politics, and religion is the root of culture. You know what that means? He's saying that, he's saying that you have politics up here, but then the root of that is, is the culture. It's the culture that drives politics, not the other way around. But then beneath culture, what is the bedrock of culture and what drives and determines culture? It is religion. So, friends, if we keep fighting up here, and if we only deal up here, then we're dealing with superficial issues. Right? Have you ever pulled weeds in your flower bed only to have them sprout right back up? You know what's happening? You're just pulling the leaves out, but the, the whole root isn't coming with it. We haven't been getting down to the root. Moreover than that, if, as I, I spent several weeks in the beginning of the series making the argument, if Jesus Christ is Lord of all, right? if he is sovereign over all, well, then what that means is, is that whenever it comes to a question beneath all, so everything. <laughs> when it comes to any question in our world for what is the solution to this, we must start with Christ's lordship. For too long, Christians, both on the left politically and on the right politically, have been looking to politics as the center of societal change, whenever this is not the case. If Christ is lord over all of life, then we must look to him to transform and to heal what our leaders in society cannot and will not. So, 
Today we look at what he prays here in John chapter 17, this prayer for unity. And this should be our vision, our goal, and the the passion of our hearts, that we might achieve and experience the kind of unity that Jesus talks about here. So we're going to look at three things related to this passage, and then we're going to be, like I said, diving into another passage as well. But this is the core of it. We're going to be looking at the purpose for unity that Jesus talks about here. The purpose for unity. Secondly, a model for unity. And then lastly, uh, the results of unity. What happens whenever we can fulfill Jesus' prayer. So let's begin with the purpose of unity that we look at in John chapter 17 here. How do you grow a church? If one of you guys in here was to become a church planner, right? Maybe in some of our futures. If one of you guys was going to become a church planner, and so now you've got this uh, little puzzle before you of how you're going to grow a church, how would you go about doing it? For many decades, for the past several decades, uh, in the church world, it was sort of a common sense knowledge that you would take advantage of this thing that that came to be called as the homogenous principle. You know, really, it's a sociological principle that can apply not just to church, but to, uh, to many different areas of business and uh, civic life and so on. But the homogenous principle, which means this, that if you want to grow a church, then you need to go into a neighborhood where there are a lot of people who are very similar to one another, right? That's most neighborhoods. Most neighborhoods attract different people who are similar to one another, either in stage of life or, or uh you know, economic class or whatever else. So you go into this neighborhood or city or area of the city, and what you try to do is you, uh, you take this one kind of model type of person. You know, you can call him Sam. And then you make your church completely designed to be really appealing and attractional to Sam with the idea that if you can reach Sam, well, then because there are a lot of other people like Sam in your city, well, then you can start reaching all of those people as well. And so you start uh, creating your whole ministry and your whole church around this idea of the homogenous principle, that we can just become this type of church for this type of person, and if we can really get our metrics right, well, then we'll boom. And you know what? It was really effective for a lot of churches. A lot of mega churches around our country, around our city, were built on this principle, and it worked for them. They grew really fast, really quickly, because they attracted Sam really well. The problem is, is that this is not scriptural in the least, because whenever Christ called us to go into the world, to preach his gospel, and to make disciples, he said this in the Great Commission. He told his disciples, go therefore and teach all that I've commanded you into all nations. He says, go into all the nations, teaching them all that I've commanded you. Now, here's what he meant by nations. Whenever we hear that, we think America, England, Germany, Mexico, right? Uh, China. We, th- we think of nation states. We think of nation states with a central government and borders and politics and so on. But Jesus was not talking about nation states. He was not talking about America and so on. I mean, that, that's somewhat implied, right? But what Jesus was really getting at here is in the term that he used, when he, whenever he said go into all nations, the term that he was using was the term ethnos. And ethnos is the word from which we get the English word ethnicity. What Jesus was saying when he said, go therefore into all nations, was he was saying, go and reach all people groups. Go and reach all people groups. Go and reach all ethnicities. Go and reach all cultures with the gospel. 
This is what Jesus was telling us to do whenever he sent us off in the Great Commission. And we see that Jesus' mission will be fulfilled because in uh, the book of Revelation, it tells us that John looked at uh, the heavens and he looked at the, he, he saw the throne where Christ sits. And he said, people from every nation, once again, being ethnos, people group, people of every race and ethnicity and culture from around the world were before the throne worshiping him. This was Christ's idea whenever he sent his disciples and as he sends us into the world. And so what this means is that Christians today, even in the 21st century in Lafayette, Redeemer, we do not have the luxury of trying to just reach one people group. Christ has called us to reach all people. It is disobedience to Christ, our Lord. It is disobedience to God. If we say that Redeemer is a church for the Bobs or the Sams. If we are to obey Christ, then we will be a church for all peoples. This is what Christ was calling us to. And why did Christ call his disciples? And why did he desire for his church to be one that would reach all people? Because of what he prays here in John chapter 17. In John chapter 17, he prays that his disciples would be one. He was talking about more than just his 12 and the little conflicts that they had between the 12. But what he was talking about is because of this vision that he had, that that the church, which would be his, that his bride would be made up of many different types of people from different ethnicities and cultures and so on, that despite all of their differences, that despite all of the worldly barriers which are placed between these people groups, that whenever they become his bride, whenever they join his church, whenever they are saved, become Christians, followers, disciples, that whenever they come before him, that they would be one. Whatever differences, whatever, uh, or whatever dividing walls that there were between them out in the world, those would be torn down in what he has done, and that whenever they come into him, that they would be one. Jesus' desire was not just for homogenous churches made up of people who are already all alike to be one, because that's easy, right? It doesn't take the gospel to take people who already have everything in common and make them one. But what shows the world the power of the gospel is whenever you have people from all different backgrounds, different ethnicities, you know, different education levels, from different neighborhoods, and that group of people, which are very diverse, are brought together and in their diversity made one in Jesus Christ. Jesus prays, may they be one that the world may know. You see, that is what shows the power of the gospel. So our first major point is this, that Jesus calls his followers to embrace reconciliation and unity. Like I said last week, the reconciliation and the unity has already been accomplished in Jesus Christ. It is antithetical to the gospel to say that it is up to us to make it happen. It it, it It was done in Jesus. We just have to apply it, okay? And that might seem subtle on the surface, but it makes a world of difference when it comes to practice, okay? So Jesus, what Jesus has accomplished, we must embrace. And we see that in John chapter 17 as well. Whenever Jesus prays in verse 23, I am in them and you are in me, so that they may be made completely one, that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you love me. Let me point out two real quick things to you from this passage. The first one is this, the obvious one, Jesus's passion for unity. Jesus' passion for unity. 
You know, whenever you're a parent, one of the, uh, the, the sweetest moments as a parent, especially whenever you're a parent of young children, is, that it is whenever there is unity between your children. Because so often, which are the, the normal state of things that you're dealing with whenever you're a parent is fighting and bickering, right? So-and-so took my toy. Well, so-and-so took my toy. You know, they're, they're fighting between each other. Or so-and-so pushed me down. Or so-and-so stole my juice. And there's all this conflict and there's, there's all this, this bickering between one another. But then the, you get these brief moments every now and then where a few minutes go by and you realize, it's been quiet. <laughs> like, what's happening? Is everything Okay. Like, should, should we go and check? I don't want to mess anything up. But it's quiet because there's unity between your kids for a little while. Even if just for a brief moment, there's unity between them. They're, they're playing together. They're loving each other well. They're, they're serving each other. You know, or maybe the bossy one just finally took control. And then, and then everything was, <laughs> the other one submitted to the bossy one finally. Maybe that's what ha- what's happening. But Whenever there's unity, it's those moments, and whenever you get to see your kids playing together just and sweet and loving, those are the best moments as a parent. Those are just some of the sweetest, most um, moments that bring so much joy to you. And friends, it's the same thing for God. God is most glorified when his people are most unified. Whenever God's people from all the different people groups of the earth all those that he has chosen to justify and bring into relationship with himself, whenever his people, whenever his children, whenever his church, whenever we come together in unity, whenever we put down the things that used to divide us out in the world so that we might be one in Jesus Christ and the gospel, that is sweet to God's heart. That brings God joy. Friends, did you, did you know that we can bring joy to God's heart in that way? And what Jesus says even more than that is that he is glorified. So we see Jesus' passion for unity. And then secondly from this passage, we also see that the purpose of unity for to bring joy to God, to glorify God, is also so that his glory might be displayed to the world. You know, this is an actual acting out of what Jesus preached in his Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5 where he said that you are to be the salt of the earth and the what? The light of the world. You know, like, like, like a lighthouse with a beacon at the top that is on the edge of the shore at night with the, with the breakers and the waves roaring, the rocks at the edge there. That is what our world is like. That is what our world is like trying to navigate their way through the various effects of sin in their lives and in our city's life and in our culture's life. And as they try to bring all their solutions to it, just navigating their way through the dark. What Jesus says is that we can be like that lighthouse. Whenever we have reconciliation and unity and we shine a light to the world to say, look, here is the way. Jesus says that the world may know that you have sent me and loved them as you have loved me. What does this mean? It means that we must embrace unity in the gospel so that we will be a light. This is our calling, church. We must embrace the unity of the gospel so that we will be a light into the world. What is happening in our world today was, it was predicted by Jesus himself. In Matthew 24, whenever Jesus is talking about the future, he says, you know, there's, there's going to be all these different things happening. And he says, nation will rise against nation. 
once again, in our 20th or 21st century minds, you know, we think about, uh, we think about wars between nation states. But what Jesus was saying here was ethnos against ethnos. He's talking about people group against people group. He says that they will rise against one another, that there will be strife, there will be conflict, and there will be divisions. Jesus himself said that the, that the kind of problems that our world has been facing, that we are facing today, would be the case. But that his work would be the solution. You see, and it, if you understand history, you understand that it has been the normal state of the world from the beginning of time for there to be divisions between people groups, right? Going all the way back to ancient history, any time that there was any reason for there to be a, a division between a people group, whether it was on the basis of an ethnicity, whether it was on the basis of a religion, whether it was on the basis of a culture or whatever else, for as long as there have been different people groups, there have been strife. There has been conflict. For as long as there have been people groups were, which had more power, they oppressed and hurt those that were weaker. This has been the normal state of the world. The exception to it is the church. The exception to it is whenever Christians, with the resources of the gospel and the hope of what Jesus said, go into the world preaching that gospel, applying that gospel, working to call those in power to repentance, working to bring healing to those who are hurt, and reconciliation to those who are once divided. The normal state of the world is division, strife, and so on along the basis of ethnicity and, so, and whatever else. The gospel brings the exception to what, was, what used to be the normal. So what is our calling? Our calling is to be a countercultural example to the world. And whenever we do that, that will be attractional. It will be appealing to the world. So if that's our calling, what does it look like? What does a Christian response to racial divisions look like? Here's where we look at another passage in Scripture, because you may not realize this, but we actually have a really beautiful and incredible story in, our, in the Bible that teaches us how to approach these problems, and that is in Acts chapter 6. If you want to turn there real fast, you can. We might have it. Do we have it in the? Yeah, we have it on the screen, so you can follow along there. In Acts chapter 6, in verses 1 through 6, we have this story, and on the surface, and at least the way that I read it for years, was that this was a story about uh, the way that deacons came about. And so the division in, or the difference between what are elders and what are deacons, right? But there is something else happening in the story here. There's another dimension that we can see the story in, which is that it shows us a model for bringing about ethnic reconciliation and unity in a church. Because what was happening in this church, this is a scenario, a conflict that happened very, very early in the, in the Christian church. What we're about to read here, this happened within... A, a couple of weeks to a couple of months after the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Okay, so this is very, very early on in the church. The church was still confined to Jerusalem. Christianity had not spread beyond Jerusalem yet. Uh, and here are the Christians, and this conflict comes up. This conflict and the way that the apostles handled it, because of how early it was, because of how small and weak the church was here, had the potential to ruin everything to break up the church, to divide them, and to uh, greatly hinder the spread of the gospel. But the apostles handled it in a way that takes the work of Jesus Christ and applying it to the situation, which was the right solution, and then there's a very different result. So in Acts chapter 6 and verse 1, it says, In those days, as the disciples were increasing in number, 
there arose a complaint by the Hellenistic Jews against the Hebraic Jews that their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution. The twelve summoned the whole company of disciples and said, It would not be right for us to give up preaching the word of God to wait on tables. Brothers and sisters, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we can appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. This proposal pleased the whole company. So they chose Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, and Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a convert from Antioch. They had them stand before the disciples who prayed and laid their hands on them. This, and I'm going to explain it to you, but what happens here should be our model for how we pursue reconciliation and unity in our world. The second major point is this, and then I'm going to break this down point by point. The early church modeled unity by their skills of sympathy, solidarity, and shared leadership. Let's look at these one by one. So first of all, the early church modeled unity, reconciliation through the skill of sympathy. So here's the conflict that was happening. As I said, Christianity was, uh, real, was still confined to Jerusalem. But even within the church, even though it was in Jerusalem, there was a little bit of diversity already because uh, Jerusalem during this time wasn't a, wasn't a podunk town, right? Jerusalem, no offense to anybody, Jerusalem wasn't, you know, the Ville Platte of Israel, okay? Uh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem was the New Orleans. It was, a, it, was, it was a large city. It was a metropolitan city. It was important to global economics, Okay, so, so Jerusalem was a diverse city. It was still primarily Jewish and majority Hebraic Jew. But you had this other group of Jews in the city and even in the church that you, you hear about in this passage, which were called the Hellenistic Jews. Here's what that means. Because of the centuries before, because of the, um, what had happened in Israel's history, whenever they were overtaken by various empires such as Babylon, Assyria, and so on, these empires would come in and take them over, and then they would take a bunch of exiles with them and spread them out across the Mediterranean world, bringing them back to their own home countries and so on. And so you had these Jews who were brought out of Israel into Babylon, Assyria, or wherever else. Their family lived there for generations, and then some of them might have made their way back to, uh, to, to Israel, to Jerusalem at some point. But whenever your family was essentially living as a Gentile for several generations, well, then the descendants of those generations, whenever they come back to what was, you know, their family long, long ago's home, they're going to look and act quite differently, right? And so you really have two different ethnicities here. And for many of them, um, you know, Timothy would be a great example. Timothy was a Hellenistic Jew. His mother was Jewish, but his father was Greek. So for many of them, they were of a mixed ethnicity. Okay, so you had the Hebraic Jews and the Hellenistic Jews. These were two different people groups um, divided by culture, but then very often most likely divided by ethnicity as well. What was happening is that the Hellenistic Jews, which were the minority group, were being overlooked in the daily distribution. The church would help the widows. They would help the poor by distributing goods, by distributing food, helping these people who were in need. And this complaint rose up that the Hellenistic uh, Jews, that the Hellenistic Jews' widows were being overlooked. They were not getting the food they needed. It was taking too long or whatever else. So there is a, there's an inequality that is happening here. There's a systemic problem based along the lines of race. Do you see its relevance to our conversations today? 
and the apostles approached it first with like what I said, the skill of sympathy. The apostles approached it by listening to them. They came to these people who were hurting and they listened to their hurt. So before we get into anything else, I just want to make a point of that, that they listened to their hurt, that they had sympathy for them. You know, if you've ever been hurt before, or if you've ever been in a time of hurting, there's nothing more painful than the pain that you're going through than to be told that the pain that you're going through is, was irrational. Right? Imagine if, if you're married. Imagine that you are hurting, that you're going through something. Maybe, maybe it's something that you experienced a slight at the office, some conflict going on in, in your family. It's hurting you, and so you go to your spouse to talk about it, to, to share with them what, it, what is hurting you. And they say to you, you're just being irrational. And they say, you just need to get over it, right? Or maybe or that, was, that was a while back. You should be past that by now, right? That hurts even more than the hurt that you had in the first place. That just compiles onto what you're already experiencing, even more pain, even more trauma, even more suffering. The majority group in this, in this situation, which was the apostles, the Hebraic Jews, did not do this. They did not say to the Hellenistic Jews that they were just being irrational or that they were, uh, or, that, or that they were, you know, whatever else that they were, that they listened to them. They listened to them in this situation. They took their pain seriously and they had sympathy for them. They did not come to these Jews, these Hellenistic Jews who were hurting and suffering, saying to them, you know, our widows are being overlooked. The apostles did not respond to them. Will all widows' lives matter? But for how many of us in the majority group in America, we responded in a similar way? Now, look, I know that there's the issue. We're going to get into that in a second between, like, the statement and the organization, right? We're going to get into that in a second, okay? But the statement, right, Black Lives Matter, is something that Christians should be able to sign on to. And whenever people, you know, going all the way back to Trayvon Martin, Michael Brown, whatever else, and people started saying this slogan, Whenever they were saying that, what they were saying is not that those lives matter more than everyone else, but just that we feel like these are being overlooked, right? It's similar to, uh, you know, whenever Houston was just slammed by Hurricane Harvey, and people started saying, pray for Houston, care for Houston, or whatever else. And if someone else would have responded, well, don't all cities matter? All cities matter, but what we're saying is that right now there's this unique situation going on. There's this unique pain that we're trying to shine some light on here. You see, so what the apostles did is they didn't just rationalize it away, try to say, you know, you guys are trying to draw the spotlight on yourself. They gave them a sympathetic response. Now, giving a sympathetic response doesn't mean giving a stamp of approval, okay? It doesn't mean that I have to come and agree with you like, so if you're in the majority group, uh, giving a sympathetic response to someone who is hurting in the minority group, giving them a sympathetic response doesn't mean putting a stamp of approval maybe on some solutions that you might disagree with here, right? But it means that you still love the person and you still listen to the person. You, you take them seriously. You see them in their humanity, or that person or that community and so on. There's so many different ways that we can apply this today, but, but one of the clearest ways that we should apply this to our life is that whenever, uh, 
a flashpoint happens in our society, similar to what we saw in several different examples last year with, with Ahmaud Arbery, George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, and so on, right? In all these situations, our first response should be a sympathetic one. It should be to listen to people who are, who are hurting, okay? Not to just say you're being irrational or that, you know, well, the facts don't, matter, don't care about your feelings, right? Facts might not care about your feelings, but Christians do. Christians should care. We should provide a sympathetic response, listening to those who are hurting, okay? So they practice the skill of sympathy. But then next to this, we can see the skill of solidarity. Because there's two groups here. There was the majority group, the apostles and Hebraic Jews, and then there was the minority group, the, uh, the widows, the Hellenistic Jews, okay? So you had these two groups here, the majority and minority group. And you had the one group, the Hellenistic Jews, the minority group, who were hurt, who were overlooked, who were, um, who were feeling victimized by this disparity, by this inequality that was happening here. But to their, we should commend them to this, for their credit, whenever they were hurt, they did not break away. They did not divide. They did not say, you know what, because you guys overlooked us, because our widows were not being treated fairly, we're going to leave and we're going to start our own new group, right? Or we're going to start a new movement which is based upon this hurt that we have experienced in this situation. To their credit, they did not do this. Instead, what they did is they remained obedient to Jesus Christ and his commandment and they stayed unified. Even though they were being hurt and even though they were commanded to stay unified with the people that they were hurt by, they did not leave. They did not give up. They did not move away. But instead, they, they held on to Christ and by holding on to Christ also held on to their brothers and sisters to maintain the unity. You see, even before the apostles brought a solution to the issue, we should credit the hurt group. We should credit the minority group for maintaining the unity in this situation because they held on even through their hurt and even through their pain. They didn't break off and form a new group that was centered on their hurts or on their ethnic identity, but even when they were offended, even when they were hurting, they held on to Christ. And so, friends, maybe for some of us, we're not in the majority group, but the minority group. Maybe for some of us, you've been through some experiences that brought up national conversations, and you felt more on the hurt side. If I could just speak to you for this for a moment, what this passage is teaching us, once again, is the skill of solidarity. And that even in hurts, even in offenses, we hold on. We hold on to Christ. We hold on to his bride that he has covenantally brought us into. And we work for unity. As I said before, uh, the, the pastor, the theologian, Christopher Brooks, who helped me so much in thinking about this, he said on this point, he said, far too often, We have allowed our hurts and our woundedness to cause ungodly affiliations based off of secondary identity factors, sub-identity categories. You know, when you think about who you are, there's a lot of categories to form your social identity, where you're from geographically, your racial or ethnic group, your gender or sex. But identity formation in Christ means that you affirm that the primary attribute of who you are is that you are a Christ follower. You are a Christian Secondarily, I am these other things, but I am a Christian first. I think it's important also that we point this out because in response to the different 
issues that we face in our nation and in our culture, even in our own city, one of these solutions has been for these different groups to come up and to form, which are based off of, you know, a, a shared experience of some kind of hurt, or which are based off of some of these other, as Christopher Brooks says, secondary identity categories. And so as, as I brought up briefly before, the issue of, of Black Lives Matter, how it started out as a, as a slogan, as a, um, you know, as, a, as a phrase, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, as a message, message. As a, it started out as a message, right, which Christians should affirm. But then this, this group started, an actual organization, which was an attempt to bring people together based upon uh, hurt and to bring people together based upon these secondary identity categories. And then as the group became more and more public, became more and more widespread, they started to share some of their insights to what they saw as these solutions to society. Well, then we saw that this group was being, um, being motivated and driven by a worldview which was very much not the Christian worldview, right? As some have pointed out before, more of a Marxist worldview. In any time in our society that we have... Uh, that the, the world gives us the solutions to the problems that we face as, well, let's start binding together in these sub-identity categories according to these secondary uh, identity categories. Then as Christians, that's where we have to say we got to pump the brakes because the solution to all the problems that we are going to face in our world are going to first come from Christ and his gospel. And what Christ and his gospel tells us is that our primary identity category is being in him. And everything else is secondary. So often, whenever the world calls us to start seeing um, ourselves and the primary identity group that we belong to as one of these secondary identity categories, then we are heading for disaster. We are heading, we are treading into dangerous waters. Whether that be something as obviously evil as white supremacy, right? That is a uh, trying to gr- bind people together, bring them together along the lines of a secondary identity category. I know it's hard for us maybe to see the to see how other groups might be the same, but anytime that we start building our identities or binding together outside of Christ and on these other things, then just as Christians, like I said, we got to pump the brakes and say, okay, let's be discerning. Let's see where are there some movements, where are there some missions that we can align with, and where are there some that we can say, you know, like I said before, we affirm what is at the heart of the statement, but as far as organizationally, we cannot align. Because as Christians, being in Christ, whether we are a part of the majority group or the minority group, we must remain in solidarity together. We must remain bind together above any other affiliation in the church. One of the problems, one of the reasons that we have been so unable to provide a helpful response to the, these problems and the division that we are facing in our country right now is because, and this, this is true, left, right, and center, majority group, minority group, white, black, whatever else, because so often what happens is that this flashpoint goes off and then we retreat into our political categories, right? This flashpoint goes off, this, this issue happens, right? And we immediately retreat into taking one side over the other, rather than first, as the apostles did, listening to each other. And like I said, even where, okay, 
maybe we still have some differences in exactly the trajectory of how this should go, refusing to separate from one another, staying bound together, working together in unity, and continuing to talk and to listen and to work towards unity until this thing is solved. But at no point, no matter how hard it gets, no matter how uncomfortable it gets, right? Working towards reconciliation and unity is going to get uncomfortable at times. But just because it gets uncomfortable, we cannot give up and disobey Christ. So we see the skills of sympathy, of solidarity. And the third thing that we can see in this passage, the skills of shared leadership. The apostles, what they did in listening to the hurt group and listening to the minority group, what they did then did instead is because they said, so this this is what I was talking about earlier with, here's where we see the creation of the two offices, elder and deacon, right? They established a deacon board. But what they did in in establishing this deacon board is they said, let's take seven men, they said, of, of good reputation, of faith, full of the Holy Spirit, and then we are going to establish them as leaders uh, to oversee this situation. But what they did is they, were, they, they called on the minority group, they called on the Hellenistic Jews to bring up their leaders because they were the group that was being overlooked. They were the group that felt like they were not being heard. And so what the apostles said is, well, then let's invite you to the table of leadership. So they have these seven names. They have Stephen and, and all these other ones. And if you know your Greek, or if you're familiar with your Greek, all these names are Greek names. Stephen, where is it? Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, Nicolaus. These are all Greek and Latin names. What they did is they didn't then just take seven Hebraic Jewish men and place them in leadership to oversee the situation, but they took seven Hellenistic Jewish Christians and place them in leadership over the situation in order to say, you have a seat at the table. You have a voice in this conversation, right? Your participation and your membership in this community matters, and so we're going to share leadership with you. This is the third skill that we see in this passage, that they share leadership with the Hellenists, so that they would know that they are at the table as well. We have so many things that we can learn from this and and ways that we can apply this. Uh, Literally in making sure that uh, in in our churches, that of all the different groups of people who are in our churches, that if someone feels overlooked, then they need to be heard. They need to be welcome to the table, welcome to the conversation. This can happen in a local church, but we can think bigger than just a local church too. This, This can happen across a city as churches come together, right? as the broader kingdom of God, as the broader body of Christ across the city or region comes together, that we are welcoming people to the table from every people group so that everyone will know that they have a seat there and that their voice matters, that their membership in the community matters. And whenever we approach the problems of of the world in this way, whenever we approach the problem of ethnic division and the need for reconciliation in this way, through listening, through solidarity and unity and holding on to one another, through sharing leadership and making our community truly being truly for every people group, then whenever we do this, the world will see and they will be amazed. What was the result of what the apostles did here? Because they handled this the right way, what was the result? We see it here. In Acts chapter 6, verse 7, right after the, the section that we just read here, where they had them stand before the apostles, they prayed, they laid their hands on these men to become leaders in the church. And then in verse 7, the result is says, So 
That means because of, so the word of God spread. The disciples in Jerusalem increased greatly in number. And listen to this. And a large group of priests became obedient to the faith. Isn't that interesting? That Luke goes on to record for us. Because they handled this well, that conflict was dealt with. Those who were hurt were listened to and and helped. There was even greater unity than there was before. The word of God was continued to be preached. That conflict that could have derailed the whole early church. Instead, there was even greater uh, mission centeredness brought to the table. More people became disciples. And then even more than that, the priests, those a part of the, 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 the Jewish ruling class religiously, the leaders in Jerusalem who for centuries had not been able to bridge this gap, who for centuries their solution to the problem of ethnic division between themselves as Hebraic Jews and the world, between themselves as Hebraic Jews and their you know, kind of odd cousins, the Hellenistic Jews, For them who had never had an effective solution to it, they saw what happened in the church. They saw the power of the gospel, and it made them believe. They who had not been convinced themselves by living in the same city where Jesus Christ was crucified and rose from the grave were made to believe whenever they saw the unity that the gospel could bring between people of different ethnic groups and people groups. Do you see how powerful this witness can be? So what is our hope? What is our hope for being able to see this, for being able to accomplish this? What is our hope to to believe that it can actually happen? Because the situation in our world looks hopeless, and like I've said a few times before, the, the church has not been doing much better. What is our hope? Remember, what we hope for has been achieved. Our job is to embrace it and to apply it. The model has been laid out for us what it looks like whenever a leadership and whenever a group, whenever a church that takes the gospel seriously and takes seriously what what the gospel says about reconciling different people groups, we see what it looks like whenever a group takes that seriously and then they apply it to a situation. My last major point is that the unity that can be achieved by the love of Christ is a powerful witness to the world. Our hope for this to be able to happen, to see this, maybe even to see this in Redeemer, our hope is not in what we can do. It's not in what is in our wisdom. And it's not, in, it is, it's not in, in what is the wisdom that is offered to us by the world, but our hope is in the love of Jesus Christ. How whenever the gospel invades and changes a person's heart and spirit, how the love of God is then also poured into that person's heart. It pulls away old prejudices, it pulls away the things that the, that that person once took pride in. It heals wounds, and then that love in our hearts then bind that love from Christ, which is in our hearts, then binds us to one another. Our hope is not once again what the media, what the politicians, and the sociologists of our world tell us. Our hope is what is in what Christ tells us about what He has done and how we apply His work. We have a world that cannot achieve reconciliation and unity on its own. And that so desperately needs the good news of Jesus Christ. So here's my last application where I'm going to close. A challenge. Will Redeemer be a model of reconciliation and unity to the world? 
Can we show the world what it looks like whenever there is reconciliation and unity brought between people of different people groups through the gospel? Can we be an attractive witness to the world? Or will we not? I'll close with, what, with one more quote from Chris Brooks. He said, we have now the capacity to pull this off, speaking because of what Jesus did. Because of what Jesus did, we have now the capacity to pull this off. If we go before Christ and say, Lord, let your promise be at work in me and help me to play my part in ethnic and racial unity. We can have a countercultural witness that is so attractional to a lost and dying world that that lost and dying world will begin to cry out, what must I do to be saved? Let's pray. Lord, we know that the power is not in ourselves. We know that the answers that are provided to us by the world from all of their different presuppositions, from their different worldviews, and from their different ideas cannot provide a full solution. They might provide effective short-term solutions. They might provide things which are superficial, moving or rearranging the flower bed, but not ripping out the problem from the root. Lord, we declare that your gospel is the only power and the only thing which can get to the root of the problem of what we face in our country today, even in our own city. And Father, we confess before you our utter failing in the task to present first and foremost to the world, to our city, the, the gospel of Jesus Christ as the only way to pull out the root of the problem and to bring healing and to bring reconciliation and to bring unity. Lord, we confess that. We confess that on behalf of Redeemer and on behalf of the, the kingdom of God beyond Redeemer. Lord, that we have been retreating into political corners, that we have been listening to the world's solutions and just trying to attach Christian lingo to them rather than instead diving into the pages of your word, into the message of what you have said about us, which you, of what you have said and, and what your church has already modeled for us. Lord, is the deep desire of my heart that Redeemer might become a community, might become a local church body, which might be an expression, which might be a witness to Lafayette and to the world around us of the power of the gospel to bring people together. Lord, despite any differences and despite any walls that, that the world tries to build up and to say that this division is important and this sub-identity category is the one, Lord, that we can come together transcending all of those things in Jesus Christ, our Savior, and might be brought together as one. As, as Paul said in Ephesians chapter 2, to the, the two groups, the two peoples now being made one man in Jesus Christ, the, the former kingdoms now being brought together and being built up into one house to be a temple for your Holy Spirit. And so, Lord, would you make yourself a temple for your Holy Spirit, even at Redeemer, that we might experience that through the unity that can be achieved. And then so that not that our name would be made great, but that the name of Jesus, 
and that the power of the gospel would be made great in Lafayette and in Acadiana for your glory. We pray this in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.